0: what the footy what the footy what the footy what the footy hi there it's paul and you're listening to what the footy the podcast that takes football fans behind the scenes here is what i have
1: lined up for you To i think he's one of the best in the country in fact if not europe because he's uh, he works with as you say he's the best out of the players and i think that's as a manager if I was looking at recruit a recruiter manager, I'm wanting to know how can he get the best out players. How, how you know his creative sign all the best players. but you have to formulate them. you have to put them together. Um, And, and you know he's he's one of the top top ones for me. This is the What the Footy
0: podcast. I hope you love it, not like it. I hope you love it. Download, subscribe, rate and review, and tell a friend to tell a friend. Let's go. Knew some other guys liked me, but I didn't know it was to that extent being a kid in primary school. Now it's a Powerful
1: people, and I think they need to recognize that, but
0: then also they need to be represented the right way. Sport in general is nothing without fans. Uh, Based on one single source of revenue alone, that being the TV. Let's just win this to appease the fans. How you doing today, Tony? Good to have you on the uh, What the Footy podcast. Appreciate it. I know we've been trying to get a hold of each other for a bit, so fantastic to be here. No, brilliant. But we'd love to start off to show this question, which is what is football to you, a business or a sport
1: and why? I think a lot of people would say with my background that we would talk about football uh, Football being a business. I mean, I, I'm a pragmatist and all, all the time is. I believe in the the sport as sport, and sport's a competitive environment that people can get enjoyment from, and whether you're viewing or participating. So um, I, I would have to go, um, even though my owner and, and other people on my board might say it's a business and might, um, might might chop me down for that. But yeah, look, sport to me is always about participation, about viewing, about enjoyment, um, and certainly football is, is definitely that for me.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a brilliant answer that, Tony. And um, yeah, just sort of starting things off, obviously you're currently sporting director at Dundee United. Congratulations on a fantastic season, obviously finishing fourth and securing uh, European football. But just sort of talk to me a little bit about your journey into football and and how you ended up becoming a a sporting director, because typically we see a lot of sporting directors tend to be sort of people formerly been on the sort of sports recruitment side or scouting side or had that sort of, technical background but sort of looking into your profile speaking with Dan as well I saw that you were a police detective then you ran a sports management company so just sort of curious to understand your uh sort of route into into the sporting director role
1: yeah look it's it, I suppose it is it is different um to, to what normal sporting directors or, or technical directors would go to I, I was um like a lot of people a young football player that never made it and you know I've heard all, all the sob stories of of coming through a youth system um, and then eventually just playing semi-professional up in Scotland um, for a while. And I think I realized that at 19, um, when I wasn't going to get contracts at some of the clubs I was at, then I decided to join the police service. Uh, yeah, it wasn't through any any joy to join the police, but I, I joined and I... Um, I, I was able to go through the police service for 20 years where I worked in a, in a lot of places including the dea and with the operations abroad and undercover work so it was um it, it was an exciting time for me but at the same time i, I was i was also still always involved in football well that was um running football tours along with uh, one of my best friends at the time and uh, we built a, a tour company up that first brought youth teams over to the uk from Iceland from America then eventually that moved into professional teams who were looking to try and do pre-season and mid-season breaks because really teams didn't really have infrastructures to to understand how to organize games abroad because communication wasn't as good then. So that that gave me a real good standpoint in in, in relation to networks because I was organizing games in Austria, Switzerland, Germany. Then eventually USA, Australia. Um, and at the same time, you know, my, my colleague at the time who ran the company was, was Kenny Moyes, his brother was David. So um, he'd worked, he started an agency, and, and, and uh, David obviously moved to our network became even bigger. And we were able to then grow it into a football agency and a football consultancy. And then during that time, I, I was I was constantly away every, every summer, Paul, and dealing with working with some of the top managers in the world. I was, I was organizing their tour, I was organizing their games, I was spending time with them, watching them coach, listening to how they worked, creating relationships with Steve McLaren, Billy Davis, um, Alan Irvin. I mean, the, the list is endless. It, it sounds like Martin O'Neill, there was so many of them. Um, and just during that time, I always wanted to continue uh, into the football industry, I, I then decided to start my own consultancy. I left the police service after 20 years. I started my own consultancy um, where I wanted to look at high performance. Being away with all these teams and watching coaches work and watching how um, all the attributes of high performance were being utilized, I felt something I really enjoyed. Um, So I did my master's at uh, Manchester Metropolitan University. My consultancy then grew with a number of consultants that wanted to come on board. And we started to do diagnostic work on football clubs. So I worked with clubs in France and in Spain, um, some clubs in the UK. And, and, and as, as that grew, um, certainly clubs that were, were not getting into high performance or low league positions, I would come in, do a diagnostic review, um, bring in specialists that were experienced, and then we, we'd commit reports. Thereafter, obviously, owners who, who saw that the, 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 the work we were doing and asked if, if we knew how to create investment for clubs. So then I suddenly became a guy that was able to try and formulate investment from the US, from the Middle East, to try and come into football clubs. And we were successful in a number of of, uh, brokerage deals for for clubs um, because the the owners who were selling clubs, first they didn't know what they were were selling. They would throw a price at it. And the price for a football club is, is, is very subjective because you can talk about the bricks and the mortar, the stadium, the history. But, you know, you can't really value the players. So we, we created a, an algorithm utilising some of the the, the the best scouts in the world, the best sporting directors, and we looked at how to how to create a valuation of players, which, listen, is again, is subjective, but it was able to to give a, a seller of a club uh, an ability to show what its potential was. And similar to, to people who want to buy a club, especially American investors, they wanted to know what it is they could buy and how they could formulate growth. Um, so I had to prepare reports in relation to how the business model would look and how the performance strategy would look to take a club who probably when you're selling a club was was at the lowest ebb and probably was either uh, hemorrhaging financially or hemorrhaging performance wise so we had to put together some substantial plans in relation to how we could build that club and make it successful again Um, and then Really, where I am now, Dundee United was. That's where that came to fruition after after working on a number of these uh, clubs and, and takeovers and consultancy. And also, I, I I done consultancy work in recruitment. I created recruitment strategies for clubs. A lot of clubs had started to use external consultants to just review how their recruitment was, how their networks were being utilised, what other technology they could use. And I was just in that space. I was constantly travelling. I was I was around the world created a very very substantial network so um, I was able to uh, push that forward but, but when Mark Ogren who was looking for a club had been interested in Dundee United who a club that I knew had asked me to try and find investment for um, he then said look why, why would I buy Dundee United the club was financially in a real bad place um, and it wasn't performed. It was in the championship. So we sat together and, and we put together a, a five-year plan and how how to get them out the club, how to get them out the the division, how to sustain them sustainable and successful. And uh, three and a half years on, we're out we out the, the championship. We're now fourth in the Premier League this the Premiership this season. We're in European football, so we're certainly going going forwards. But that that's not an easy feat. That's, that's easy for me to say that. That's yeah, I've, I've done everything I said on the tin because the reality is. There's a lot of luck. There's a lot of good people you have to get on board. There's a lot of trauma you have to go through. So the, the journey has been varied. And, and all through that, I mean, that's that's now, I'm 53 now, so that's that's a period of nearly 20, 20 or 30 years uh, coming up. So it's um, it's been a long journey.
0: Yeah, no, definitely, because um just sort of unpackaging a bit of what you mentioned there, Tony, you obviously mentioned, obviously, working with clubs in France and in Spain and, and observing sort of high high performing elite coaches out there what would you say some of the key learnings that you almost took from that experience and brought into Dundee United because it's quite remarkable to see a team who like you mentioned were in the championship to then go forth in 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 the Scottish Premier League and then and then kick on to to securing uh, European football for next season as well so what what were the key learnings that you took from those those experiences
1: I think I think because this has been quite a long a long time, twenty years in the making. The, the changes I've seen probably in the last three to four years, um, especially in the UK, there's been a, a massive dynamic change in relation to how football clubs work. If we if we reverted back to, um, you know, the other side of of you know twenty eighteen, twenty seventeen, even. You know, clubs were still working in a very traditional way. You know, there's always a saying that we have in the UK of we've always done it that way. You know, why change? People don't like change. Clubs, clubs have a traditional model, whether that a model and infrastructure of, of how a manager works with a football club, it is his assistant, his first team coach, his goalkeeping coach, you know, and, and works in a traditional way of of periodization for, for the for the weeks training. That, that was not really changing. You know, I've watched a lot of, of managers abroad, and a lot of it was similar. And then, then obviously there was a there was a change. Um, some some clubs had had success because they changed slight like, structures, they changed different methodologies. So for me, it was now looking at football as as a, as a an industry now that's almost got on the same bandwagon as as uh, uh, other technology firms because because now we're, we're in a you know where everyone's looking for competitive margins, small margins to get better, whether that's in recruitment, whether that's in, in and performance whether that's in, in, in uh, medical and, and rehabilitation of, of players so that's the biggest thing I've seen change and I, and I think now to be honest with you I think we're moving so fast it's very very difficult for football people within football to, to stand still I think with social media with the way players are moving very quickly with the way agents have, have become even more prominent in the game it's I, I think that's there's a positive to that that the football's changing but there's also a negative because you know the one thing we do know in football is fans are constant they ain't changing certainly in this country you know if you're in the US in a sports franchise you might change your your team so with all this change moving within clubs and, and you know the crave for success becoming you know you know the, the three, three, three games for a manager they say those things are becoming even more stressful within people within the game and I think that's that's something that football is now becoming it's going to have to tail off again in my opinion.
0: yeah no, that's 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 quite interesting because one thing I wanted to almost um, sort of looking almost speak with yourself about is I've always been fascinated by by Scottish football, whether that's looking at sort of Rangers, for example, whether the, the way they've sort of leveraged sort of out of contract or released Premier League Academy players like Calvin Bassey, he was at Leicester and sort of picking him up or clubs that have leveraged the loan system like James Madison going out to Aberdeen or, 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 or um, Rangers looking at Ryan Kent at Liverpool. How big is it for you in terms of, Finding those sort of unique ways to almost pick up players in order to bring them over to Dundee United, and um, how, how how do you sort of approach recruitment in a way to sort of be be a little bit different?
1: So that's, that's a really good question because you know we at United, one of our, our key pillars is, is to to rebuild the academy. We've been successful over the years before before we came to the club. You know, Johnny Russell. Um, John Souter, who's just moved to Rangers. Andy Robertson came to the club as a development player. They developed him and sold him on to Hull City. The rest is history. So they, Duncan Ferguson, back in the day, they always had a rich, um, the always had a rich view of of young talent. That's um, that stopped stalled for a number of reasons. But you know now, when you talk about Rangers and Celtic, they've had to change their models. So, you know, there's there's no there's no there's no real clear path. They have very good academies, Rangers and Celtic, similar to us. We have a very good academy. The problem they have, they are they are competing at its highest level now. Both of them now in the Champions League, so it's very difficult for them to blood the youngsters in the academy. Whereas Dundee United, we are we, we are a big club. There's there's no there's big expectations on us. I think we're in probably sixth in relation to the budget within the, the league. So, but we had to make a clear defining um, decision that we were going to. Develop our own players and get as many as them into the team, and then you know we've been able to do that. We've been able to give them opportunities. We've been able to uh, drip feed them into the into some of the big games last season, as particular Rangers and Celtic sixteen year olds playing. Bring them out, look at their development plans, and and I think that gives us a bit of scope that we're not like Rangers and Celtic, where they're under so much pressure to um, to to compete at the highest level. Um, what they have done, and you know very admirably, Ross Wilson at Rangers and Michael Nicholson at Celtic, and with Ange Postecoglou, is they've looked at a loan market down south and they looked at these players where they've probably said, "Well, I can see a, a Calvin Bassey," or even um, even you know back a few a few months ago with, with the likes of Dembele coming to Celtic, where they've, they've seen good recruitment to be able to bring them in the team to make them better so I think that's that's indicative of what Scotland, the Scottish market is, we have a very good product here I think it's always put down, players that come up here, Dylan Levitt came from Man United this year with us, he'd been on loan to Charlton he'd been on loan to Croatia where this hadn't really worked out but he came here in a, in a real tough league physically but certainly was able to uh, play with more confidence play, play um, w- with an ability to know that I hate to use the word pressure, but less of a pressure on him, um, which and, and he just absolutely came to the club, bought into what we're trying to do, and, and um, he, again, was a real, real big asset for us, and there's been a number of players we've done that with from England. As you mentioned, guys like James Madison started here, even back to the days of Tim Krul and Cashmash uh, Michael were up as goalkeepers at Falkirk back in the day. So, yeah, I, I really think Scottish football has, has an opportunity to do that, and it's not too far. We speak the same language rather than going abroad to, to countries. So it's it's very uh, it's a very positive experience for these players.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And, and and how do you almost see the sort of the new regulations that are coming in with FIFA in regards to sort of loan restrictions? How do you almost see that affecting obviously the sort of the sort of recruitment market over there in Scotland?
1: Yeah, well, I think I think over the last few years, not just the loan, the loan restrictions are coming in, but also the restrictions in relation to work permits and, and the, what the, the Brexit has caused us is, is, you know, Scotland are slightly lucky than England because we, we still have the work permit process with governing body endorsements. So we actually become, again, a hotbed because we're able to bring players from, from abroad into our country. And, and we've done that. So far, we brought Matthew Cucho from who's an under-20 Ghana player, into. Uh, he'd been up, 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 up over at Bayern Munich, but we brought him over here um, through the work permit process, along with uh, Ilmari Il- Niskanen, who is um, a Finnish international. So, so th- those things are positive for us. The, the loan restriction is, is absolutely going to be, be, be detrimental. We, we, we also like to send a lot of young players on loan. We think it's a very good part of our development. And we had 14 players on loan last season, so going out the way to the lower league in Scotland. Um, so, yeah, look, I think these, these regulations can be restrictive. I think you just have to adapt as a football club and, and stick to the key principles, which is develop your own players, get them into your first team as quickly as possible, because it's going to help your own team and it's also going to help the long run in trying to sell them to other markets.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. But it's now time for my favourite part of the show, which is uh, what the foot are you lying for, Tony? So uh, take me away with your uh, three statements, please. But well, you know,
1: what? I am thinking of these statements, so you need to bear with me. So, so the first one was that I was responsible for Everton FC being known as the People's Club. Number two was uh, I was shot at outside Celtic football stadium wow and number three number three was I beat Fabio Cannavaro at headed Tennis and if you look at me then if you've seen the picture of me then I, I wasn't this size then I've got to say.
0: <laughs> oh those are those are some good ones some good ones um, so you're responsible for Everton being called the People's Club um, oh, you did mention you, you did a lot of work with clubs and I'm going to say that one's a, uh, Fabio Cannavaro. You mentioned working in Spain. I don't know. Do you know the I think it's one of those stories that you might tell at a dinner party. So I'm going to go with the Cannavaro one being true. I'm going to go with the middle one that was being shot at Celtic Park. Obviously, you're a police detective. I'm going, to go, I'm going to go with that one as is, is true and I'm going to go with the first one as a lie, but we'll, we'll find that towards the end. But um, just sort of carrying on in, in, into, into sort of part two, Tony. Obviously, with, with success, as you guys have sort of achieved, comes a lot of, obviously, uh, people out there and, and other sort of teams trying to obviously court players and sort of have a look at your players as well. What's the sort of communication with the fans and the overall sort of strategy in terms of sort of dealing with that? Are you going for that sort of player trading model where you're you happy and okay to sort of give these players a platform, improve them, and 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 sort of have a win-win situation where, by the end of it, you can you can sort of sell on sell on players and sort of reap the rewards of that, reinvest into the playing squad, and build a sustainable football club like a lot of clubs over here in the over here in England have been able to do too.
1: Yeah, I think I think now and the way life is, I think everyone likes a plan, and, and if you're a young football player, even at... 13, 14 years old, you know, your, your parents want to know your plan. As you, soon you hit 16, you have an agent, they want to know the plan. Um, as you, you rightly mentioned, the fans have got are big stakeholders in this, and they want to know the plan. In fact, you know, prior to us coming to Dundee United, it was famous that they, they sold Stuart Armstrong, Gary Mackay, steven and Nadia Chifke to, to Celtic on the eve of a, a semi-final, I think it was, against Celtic, Scottish Cup semi-final. Um, and the, you know, the fans were, were up in arms because they sold the best players to the team that were going to play and, and I think that's something we have to also be considerate of because it doesn't matter what your model is we can't be detrimental to the football club, that, that's that's our key attribute no matter how much money there's, there's potential there but I, I think now with, with regards to a plan certainly what, what my experience tells us is that as, as soon as a player's going to sign for our club we need to outline what our Pathway plan is, is going to be for that player, and you know how do we see him within his two or three year contract being developed? How do we see him playing in the first team? And, and it's always difficult because there's no player's got a god given right to, to go and play games. But I think what we can do is we can provide them with what where we see them, that player, how we're going to drip feed them in, drip feed them out, put them on loan. Um, look at the optimum time where we think he can move, not, not just because of the, the financial, but also for the, for the own, the, the own uh, players' uh, psychological and emotional attributes as a young player. So, for example, Kerr Smith um, was a player, came to our academy, very, very good talent. I think we allowed him to go down to Man, uh, to Everton and uh, Aston Villa to have a look at him um, whilst he was in contract with us. He signed a contract with us. He believed in the process. Um, we spoke to his dad and his agent, and we made clear in notes that we would, would try and set the KPIs to get him at least four or five games that where he could he could um, see where he was as level wise. And uh, Mickey Mellon gave him his debut last season, but Tom Coach gave him his. His big games against Celtic at Celtic Park. You know, it's a sixteen-year-old centre-back where he was, he was excellent, um, and and I think that just paved the way for his move to Aston Villa, which happened last January, um, where all parties, you know, from the fans had seen the player. It was clear that the player was going to have a different uh, pathway than through Dundee United's first team, which is okay because. Some players will be fast-tracked, but we also knew as a club we were not being detrimental because we had young players like Lewis Nielsen, Ross Graham, who's come into the team now and done exactly the same thing, slightly older. So these things, again, maybe they they come from default for Alan Design, but the design has happened. We've lost a young centre-back, we have two other top-quality centre-backs coming through. So I think, I think when we have that storytelling and we have that model for fans, I think we have that for the owner who's happy because he's been able to get a, a real good a fee, fee for academy player. My academy director's happy because he's developed a player and he can now recruit other players to say, let's go to Dundee United. They put players on the first team, they sell them at the optimum time, they, they make sure they're going to be right before they go. So these things are so important to football clubs. I think what I said to you earlier, Paul, is that you cl- clubs are always frantic, clubs are always we're under so much pressure let's move if you stick to a process and a plan is something i've learned from my police days from my consultant to see days stick to the process and plan plan adopt it adapt it rather when things don't go well listen to what your other people within your organization are telling you have good people around you and, and i think that's a real key to success and, and football has been hard to do that because as you know um you know managers get sacked very quickly and you know they take all the coaching staff with you, and part of the sport director's role for me is to try and negate that and trying to keep these long-term strategies in place.
0: Yeah, no, that's 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 really interesting because, like, as you sort of mentioned, you're susceptible to fan pressure, media pressure, different sort of narratives, different sort of agendas all coming together. But like you sort of mentioned there, I guess it's a case of having that confidence in, in that plan. And obviously, one of the big plans we've done, the United is. You're you're very, very big on research and development, innovation. Obviously, you've got Dan Parnell, he has been a guest on the podcast on there as well. What's what's sort of Dan's involvement and, and how are you trying to, to sort of almost like always be thinking about the future and almost having that eye on on, on on what's going to happen next?
1: Yeah, I mean, Dan, Dan, I met Dan whilst I was doing my master's degree in sports directorship at Manchester Met with the VSI. Um, and he was one of the lecturers, and, and to be honest, we just hit it off straight away. We had very, very similar th- thought processes on how football should be going. Um, I was very, I, I really, I was not an academic before I went there, but we research and looking at different, critically analysing everything in sport was really important to me, and it still is, and I look at things a lot different way. Um, so Dan, Dan and, and, and I, Dan started doing a lot of consultancy from a consultancy company, and when we brought them into the United, we felt, we, again, these small margins, how are we going to get better? We brought in a few other consultants, Dr. Rylan Morgan, who'd worked at Liverpool's Head of Performance to, to oversee a medical and sports science, Dr. Jill Cook at Liverpool John Moores to look at um, uh, sports psychology and how we can get optimum benefits, especially for young players. So so that grew into it, and Dan's really ran with the data lab, which allows us to provide... Um, good CPD for our staff, trying to develop our staff in-house. You know, we're very big on letting uh, people do courses, looking at them to go, and uh, whilst they're still in post, I think, I think the best time of learning and getting the benefit of that learning is when they're actually in the course, rather than, you know, if somebody comes in with a PhD or a master's, they did it 10 years ago, they're actually, they, they picked up a lot of different habits from them, so I like it at the time, they can bring fresh ideas. And then we were working with 17 interns, and those interns, Dan Dan's brought in from from retail to commercial to media and right through the performance. And, And what it does is what it does for us is as a young development staff is brings enthusiasm, brings different ideas. It gives them the real experience. And, and listen, there'll be mistakes they make and there'll be things in football. You know, there's always a thing in football I learn, especially during the tours, is not to be too intrusive. You know, you always never stepped on the grass during a training session. You made sure you don't speak when you're, you're not spoken to. And, and sometimes these these interns do that and, and everyone looks at them as if they've got two heads. But, you know, it's, it's, it's important for us to try and not only develop players, but develop people, develop staff. And we've done that in our appointments and some of the appointments we've made as well.
0: Now that's, that's a really interesting point, because when I had Les Reed on here, he said a similar thing when he was at Southampton, that whole idea of getting like young, hungry, enthusiastic, smart people around the table, that diversity of thought, diversity of thinking, to, to really try and push the football club forward. That's uh, super useful. You were talking earlier about the five-year plan and obviously progressing the club and developing the club. Um, what's the sort of future ambition? What's next? Obviously, I'm, I'm guessing the the sort of overall goal is to, to 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 sort of compete with Celtic and Rangers. What's 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 the next steps
1: as part of the uh, the five year plan? One of the key parts is is, is obviously to uh, try and create the club's success. It's difficult in Scotland when you have Rangers and Celtic as two powerhouses. But the but the reality is this club and the United has, has has won cups before. It's, it's Got to Europe and and been able to retain that European place every year is a huge success for United to get to cup finals. We we got to a cup semi final last season. and um, I think you know that's something we want to to, to emulate obviously. And and this year be actually this season we did well. We beat Rangers. We, we drew with Celtic twice. Um, so you know we're. we're we we may not be competing with, them, but we'll certainly be giving them what I say is a bloody nose now and then, if you like, and a bit aggressive that one. But that's that's a Scottish term. So um, yeah, but for, for us is is and the owner's got a clear viewpoint that you know he wants to try and make the club successful, bring bring the city of Dundee back to to the forefront of, of of high level sport, and also he wants to try and make some money, and he's been very clear, you know, he wants to try and and create the brand of Dundee United internationally, be able to to get players through, sell them, work smart within the recruitment strategy, look at other other um other areas of, of, of Europe and and beyond to try and bring players in, make them better and sell them. And I think that's that's a key attribute of what we want to do. And and in football, especially in Scottish football, you have to be careful because one minute you're riding high and in the next season you're you're down below because you, you try and change a lot of things and you know, as I said to you before, by trying to keep a same plan and just adapting it when things go wrong, staying the course, not, not being too, too reactive, especially in relation to coaches and managers. Now let's look at you know, one of the big things and mantras I have, that is, you know, if, if we are underperforming, let's see how we can support it, not how we can cut it out.
0: No, that's, that's really useful, uh, but it's now time to reveal your answers to, uh, to what the
1: are you lying for? The moment of truth, Tony. Listen, well, you—you were almost. I think you're on track with with some of your answers there. To be fair, so yeah, I, I can go through them if you want. Oh, uh, yes, please, yes, please, yeah. So, so, so yeah, so being responsible for Everton FC, it's it's, it's a slight exaggeration, but on the day that David um, Moyes was was becoming the Everton manager, myself and his brother Kenny, that picked him up at his house in Preston and, and drove him to, through the streets of Liverpool to go and go to press conference and the signing. It was at that time that. We were discussing it. He, he saw everyone, wherever the strips on around the area coming in. He tells the story a lot and he says, you know, it looks as if this is a, the club, the people's club. And I said, and, you know, whether I, I did say, maybe I'm having a bit, I uh, had a bit of a poetic license to say, yeah, I, I named it. But to be fair, David was very clever with that. And and, and he was right because it was a, it was used by the club and still is to this day.
0: Yeah, no, definitely. And what do you sort of make of what, what sort of David's been doing at West Ham and uh, obviously... I think a fantastic job. Um, if you sort of look at how much the sort of their budget is in, in comparison to some of the other clubs being able to, to obviously get get Europa League football last season, this season getting into the Europa Conference. What's your sort of thoughts on, on how he's sort of been progressing
1: there? Well, I, I was uh, I, as I say myself is that David's brother Kenneth, we, we grew up together, we were school together. David was a few years ahead of us. Um and I can tell you, you know, from day one, he, he's been such an intense individual as, as on football. That it was always going to be the part that was going to be successful. I think, I think anybody that's got resilience, to you know, he did a great, great work, he did at Preston and Everton, and then obviously Man United, everyone knows, but I think if you really reflect on that, I think it was very difficult for him and other top managers to go through into the club. Um, he also then made other decisions that he wanted to do, but now at uh, West Ham, he's, he's, he's been fantastic. I think what you get with David is he's the same now as he was as a, as a young coach, he's intense, he wants his best for the players. I've been lucky to be away with him in a number of countries in pre-season, watching him work. He is uh, he's, hes a very, very, you know, I think he's one of the best in the country, in fact, if not Europe, because hes uh, he works with, as you say, gets the best out of the players. And I think that's, as a manager, if I was looking to recruit a manager, I'm wanting to know how can he get the best out of players. how How you know, it's great to sign all the best players, but you have to formulate them, you have to put them together. Um, and, and, you know, he's hes one of the top top ones for me.
0: Yeah, I know a lot of West Ham fans being being the East London boy and uh, they're uh, they're very very happy with him. But um but yeah, your uh, your other answers.
1: So so the one at the shot I was saying Celtic by was it was an easy one for you because yeah, back in the early 90s when I was in the drug squad, we had uh, we'd been following a a, a, a major criminal and, and we decided to to uh, I stopped the car and a hard stop and playing close outside Celtic Park. And he decided to discharge a firearm through the window, which was a bit scary at the time. Although at the time you don't think these things. And, um, you know, I, again, another poetic license. I, I tell the story of my kids that it just grazed my temple you know, and I was able to, but the reality was through fear, you end up, uh, you end up arresting them But yeah, that was, and it just so happened he was outside Celtic Park. And then now, you know, I walk through the same, same area now going to games and, and think you know down there it could have been my you know it could have been a different story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and then thirdly the, the Cannavaro story. So um again you know again about a bit of poetic license I, I we took uh, I did a lot of consultancy for Al Ally when and Fabio was a player and a coach there with Roy Aitken who was a friend of mine who's a sporting director. We went to Australia for three weeks. Spent a lot of time with Fabio and, and a lot of the coaching staff there. Um and we used to play head tennis at it and. and uh, I think there was a, a dubious part of that when we were playing that he, he felt that he didn't win because he only won the World Cup in the, in, in La Liga. So um, when, when a fat guy like me decided to get a point off, and I think it was a header, and he was Dubai a bit of line. So that one, yeah, that was that was, was true as well.
0: What was um what was he like as a character? Because obviously, like World Cup win, last I think the last defender to win, win the Ballon d'Or as well. Just just sort of talk to me about what what he was sort of like as a person.
1: So so he'd, he'd, he was coming to the end of his playing career and ended it in the Middle East with Al Ali and, and then he was moving to really like to, to go into the coaching at that time. Um but what I will say about you know, you can, I think there's there's times and with players, especially when I meet players, you can there's an aura of it. And I still get excited about meeting certain certain of my heroes. Um, he was an absolute hero when I watched him play. And funnily enough, just when we flew back for a to the Middle East, Al Ali played um Diego Maradona's team in a game and I was in Roy Aitken's office who's the sporting director for Al Alley and Fabio was in having a coffee and who walked in with Diego Maradona and it's one of these surreal moments you're sitting with two World Cup captains sitting across at you and Roy Aitken who was captain of Scotland and I'm sitting in there saying well should really be here you know um, but yeah look Fabio, top top player he's had an opportunity to do management e- even in Australia it was it was because there was a big Italian uh, community in Perth it was unbelievable when he was walking down the street. I mean, people were asking if he mean, kisses ba- their babies and things, you know. So, top, top player. And um, as I said, I know he's, he's trying to forge his, his career in, in
0: coaching. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, yes, now time for the last question, which is the what the footy question, which is what the footy needs to change or happen within your
1: space? Uh, uh, well, that that was a, uh, it's, it's a good question. that, And, and I think... I think I've listened to a few of your podcasts, Paul, which I'm really impressed with. Some of the stuff on investments and Laurie Pinto's talking about investment of of, of players. I, th- I think what we have we do see now is this this what your original question was, that the, the, the how business is now coming through into sport. We have a lot of American investors now wanting to look at to buy a franchise if you like. And then when you're a when you're a franchise owner. And you bought Liverpool, you know, some people would say the Fenway Sports Group, what, what they come in, but they've been so successful. And you're saying that's, that's a real positive. Some other certainly Premier League clubs might look at American owners and say it's not been successful. Um, so so I, think, I think for me is that the, the movement forward in technology, the movement forward in, in American owners, is, is probably the change that most fans don't want in the game. They want to hold on to traditional. They want to hold on to the traditional ways. And we saw that with the emergence of a potential Super League. Fans were up in arms. And I think the key part of that is the fans are always going to run the game here. I think no matter how much people come with money, no matter how much, it's always going to come down to the fans. And I think for me, if, if we can keep that, keep it fan-related, keep it cost-effective, keep it an entertainment that's not going to get sterile, um, that people are still going to come and young people are going to come and watch the game because there's so much, so many different um, other things for them to do. I think it's really important as, as, as custodians and people who are working the game, and include yourself on this on podcast. We really need to, to to continue to try and keep the sport of football going. And, and, and uh, because you, you see some of the games now, that you, you still get excited when Benzema scores a last minute goal, you still get, you know, when, when the, the league's going to land, the wire and the, the Premier League. You know, so I just don't want that to become so sterile that we're oversaturated and we lose focus on it.
0: Yeah, no, What'll definitely, no, definitely, I, I definitely couldn't agree more. I feel like as football fans, we're we're so nostalgic and we and we just like the purity of our game and obviously it's become more of a business over the last sort of 10, 15 years. And we've we've all benefited from that, whether that's players, whether that's us as fans, whether all the success that the different owners have brought in into our game, the players they've brought in as well. So, yeah. But just, I think
1: that's we- interesting just, just on that because, you know, I think I, I, I see fans now and now their sons or their grandsons or their granddaughters or their, you know, they all, they pass it down for generation to generation. There's not many things. Somebody once told me when we came into Dundee United, one of the fans said to the American owner and I was there, he said, you know, if, if my pub shuts down, I can go to another pub or if my, my, my shop, one of the local shops shuts down, I can go and shop elsewhere. My football club shuts down, I can't go anywhere else. And I think that's that's a real, it was a real eye-opener to my American investor and Mark Ogden. And he thought, you know, I get it now.
0: No, definitely. And, and I think a lot of a lot of owners definitely definitely do get it. And I think it's just about... I think the most it is sort of what you mentioned there that whole point around communication, communication internally, communication externally. And I think through that, fans, fans, fans are generally all happy. But Tony, sporting director at Dundee United, pleasure having you on the What the Footy podcast. Thank you for your insight and uh, congratulations on a fantastic season. And uh, hopefully, you can go all the way in the, uh, the Conference League next season as well. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. Take care. What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? What the footy? New Samaladais liked me, but I didn't know it was to that Imagine extent. being a kid in primary school, now nice it's <laughs> a footy. <put> in <laughs> awesome. Powerful
1: people, and I think they need to recognise that, but then also they need to be represented the right Sporting way. sport
0: in general is nothing without fans. Uh, based on you know one single source of revenue alone, that being that So when well the league, let's just win this to appease the fans.